Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. So today, we're going to discuss a topic that came to us from one of our listeners. While it has taken me a bit of time to find today's guest to have this conversation, we're going to talk about home and what that means in healthcare. Let's pause on that word, home. It's an incredibly important word in the context of healthcare, especially when you're providing services to a person in a place that they call home. It is why we distinguish between patients in a hospital and residents in long-term care and clients in home care. Most of us are familiar with the phrase that a person's home is their castle, or as my dad so emphatically taught me early on, my house, my rules. So when you're, say, a nurse or a personal support worker going into someone's home, you're in a space not just your own, and perhaps where a person holds that it is their place and their rules. But that obviously isn't always or fully true, because a long-term care residence is also a place of employment, where employees have rights and expectations, such as to be safe or free from harm or attack. Most workplaces have policies specifically designed to prevent abuse, harassment, or discrimination. But again, what happens when the workplace is in another person's home? To say it's complicated is an understatement, which is why I've invited Kevin Hayes, an expert clinical ethicist, to join us for this conversation, to guide us around some of these obstacles and minefields, and hopefully to provide us some strategies as leaders how to manage these challenges. Kevin is the Senior Advisor, Clinical Ethics at the University Integrated Health and Social Services Centre for the West Central Montreal, aka the SIUS, where he worked since 2018. For those of you not familiar with this use, it is comprised of nine healthcare institutions and 34 member facilities, including the internationally renowned Jewish General Hospital and university affiliated research institutions, along with frontline clinics, rehabilitation, and long term care sites. In total, the CIUS has over 13,000 employees that provide a seamless continuum of care to nearly 400,000 patients, residents, and users in one of Canada's most diverse catchments. Kevin has a master's in science in experimental medicine with a specialization in bioethics from McGill University, where he graduated in 2013. He has been active in various frontline and senior management positions in the field of health and social services since 1985, including coordinator of professional services, ombudsperson, and chair of the Clinical Ethics Committee at the CLSC, René Cassin, a local community service center, and director of multidisciplinary services at the CSSS Cavendish, a health and social service center, as well as an associate director of academic affairs at the CUS West Central Montreal Health. So hi, Kevin, and welcome to the HQ. Hello, good morning. Nice to talk to you. Yes, I'm really, uh, really grateful for you joining me today, Kevin. Um, I've been really looking forward to having this conversation, so I'm really glad that we've been able to connect with you um, to, to go into uh, some depth on a, a topic which is very complicated, uh, very nuanced, um, and entangled in you know rights and values, autonomy. So you know maybe let's just get to it if if we can. Um, as I say, I, I know it's a very nuanced topic uh, that has several different pers- and perhaps equally valid perspectives. So. As an ethicist who works in this space, can you perhaps frame the problem for our listeners? You know, what is the issue you see that you can help people navigate? So 
You know, regarding the question of uh, discrimination uh, as experienced specifically by healthcare workers in a, a long-term care environment or home care uh, environment, um, unfortunately, uh, these situations exist in our network. We do know of people who work in uh, long-term care settings and um, uh, clients who go to people's homes who experience situations of discrimination uh, by the client. Um, and it's, it's, it's disturbing and it's unpleasant and difficult. I'm not saying that it happens all the time. I'm not even saying it happens a lot, but there are definitely situations where those situations occur. And um, I am often um, asked to participate in conversations about those kind of situa situations in my efforts to be kind of a mediator. Ethicists mm -hmm. are often mediator, mediating between healthcare personnel and uh, clients, uh, residents, uh, family members, substitute decision makers regarding all kinds of healthcare situations. Um, and one of them uh, would potentially be the fact that the personnel feels um, uh, a, a certain distress about working in an environment where there are uh, discriminatory comments made or actions or behaviors demonstrated, uh, whether it's at home or in a long-term care environment. And, and it impedes the ability to offer the kind of care and services that we think need to be offered. And so um, that's that's where I get involved, and uh, it it is definitely um, an issue that occurs um, that that we are aware of um, in in healthcare. Thanks, Kevin. So maybe against the help of some of our listeners who maybe haven't thought this through themselves, maybe they work in different kinds of environments. How is a receiver's experience of abuse, hatred, racism, sexism, discrimination different when they are employed in healthcare and specifically in long-term care versus experiencing those same sets of behaviors on the street or in, you know, a public store? Well, I'm not sure it's it's different in in the, in the sense that it's disturbing no matter where it occurs. Mm -hmm. But I guess if you're a receiver and you are working in one of these environments, you go there every day and you know that there are certain clientele who are going to be demonstrating these kind of behaviors and comments and actions. Um, you know, you could decide not to go back to a store where this might occur, but yeah. to go back to your own workplace, uh, that's, you know, that's kind of an obligatory thing. You have to go back to work. That's where you work. And, uh, and so it must um, certainly um, create a sense of, uh, lack of safety, as you mentioned at the very beginning, um, um, uh, an environment where people feel like I'm, uh, I should be safe at work. I should be able to go to work and feel like I'm doing my job to the best of my ability and not have to be subjected to this kind of these kind of comments or behaviors or remarks um, that are that are they're hurtful, they are discouraging. Um, and they, they, they really have, I think, a, a very negative impact on maybe one's ability to be able to do their job uh, to the best um, uh, that they can. And so uh, it's, it's unpleasant. It's an issue of you know, great concern in our society. And it's certainly uh, an issue of great concern for this kind of employee who is doing their best to work with a very, very um, complicated clientele. And, and I would say even in a very complicated job. It's not easy to work in a long-term care environment. It's not easy to offer home care services at home. And to have that added dynamic of this kind of behavior 
um, it's certainly uh, uh, unpleasant. Yeah, and I guess, you know, our society as a whole has become, you know, more woke, I guess, in some of the language of our times, right, to some of these practices that maybe we've taken for granted or accepted or tolerated over the years and, and now sort of getting to a place where we, we feel like a need to um, to say something. So, uh, you know, as an ethicist in this space, you know, what is the ethical problem that we're running up against then? Well, the living in a long-term care environment is a, what we call in Quebec is a milieu de vie, right? It's probably the same terminology across Canada, that it's living there is living in your home, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though it is, uh, you know, a center, an organization, efforts are made to ensure that a long-term care environment is like, kind of like living at home in the best way we can, where the the client would, the resident would bring their furniture and their pictures and have mm -hmm. their room. And, you know, they, 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 they have their kind of life as similarly as possible um, in this, in this long-term care environment. And so, um, you know, someone lives in their home. Uh, can someone act and say and do whatever they want because it's a milieu de vie. It's where I, it's where I live. And so the, the ethical issue is when the personnel is, is you know, unable to function the way they need to function in this environment comfortably, because you know, someone says, well, this is my home, I can say and do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we're a free society, it's true, um, but you can't say and do whatever you want. And you shouldn't be able to act in a way that is um, prejudicial or discriminatory towards someone who's trying to work so hard to help you out. So these behaviors are unacceptable. It creates for an unsafe work environment. Um, the it's it's a an environment that is um, can be very discouraging, as I mentioned, to the personnel, um, not allowing them to be motivated, not allowing them to be comfortable um, in doing their job. And there is an expectation that they're going to do their job to the best of their ability, um, you know, despite this kind of terrible challenge. So. Um, the, the personnel is a is a um, precious resource, mm -hmm. and it's very important that we all know that. And post pandemic, I think that we're starting to see that even even more how precious a resource this is. Uh, they're involved in a very demanding milieu, working very uh, in a very challenging um, environment uh, where we actually don't even have enough personnel working in this kind of environment. So how to bridge this issue, how to find solutions, how to make the environment more comfortable, how to make staff feel more, uh, feel safer, more comfortable, um, uh, and, and to giving them tools to be able to either understand the situation for what it is, or um, getting the support around them and the teams to be able to do those kind of thing. And as an ethicist, when I do become involved in those kind of consults, uh, whereby I realize that it's uh, the discrimination makes for a uh, a harder work environment, and that the clientele might not even be satisfied with the care that they're receiving because it's not, uh, you know, at the ultimate level. Um, I am there to attempt that mediation effort and to offer as much support as I can, both to family members of that resident and all of the team members engaged in that kind of uh, situation. So. You know, from an ethical point of view, mediating that kind of circumstance, finding a way for there to be a re more reasonable understanding, building bridges, understanding, that might be part of my function in this kind of a situation. 
Thanks, Kevin. So I think as you've been describing, I mean, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is because we use language like milieu de vie or residence or home, um, especially in long-term care, I think, as you've described. So, I mean, without trying to be provocative, what are the challenges with using this kind of language, you know, and are there limitations to this definition? So um, there, you know, it's a milieu de vie. We try to support that uh, model as much as we can. And it's not just a word. It really is um, uh, a real thing. Uh, there mm-hmm. are significant efforts to make someone feel as if, you know, when you left your home where you've been your own home for so many years, and you're kind of forced to live in a long-term care environment because of a significant loss of autonomy, we do make every effort possible to try to make this an environment where you feel like I can actually call this home. The limitations would exist when we are confronted with these kind of behaviors, these discriminatory behaviors, that that whereby we are obligated to uh, pursue uh, kind of an, an analysis, an exploration, understanding of where this is coming from, and try to find a way to to put an end to it, even in a milieu de the environment. Um, so there need to be some kind of interventions where, while we're offering care, support, services, assistance, um, um, all the help necessary for an, uh, an individual who has to live in a long-term care environment, we need to support our personnel in that environment as well. We can't ignore the, the, the I guess I would even say the violence of it because you know verbal and psychological and emotional um, uh, uh, comments, uh, behaviors towards the personnel, it is a form of violence. It's a form of mm-hmm. um, suffering uh, imposed upon them as they try to do this very, very hard work. So um, the the language is fair because it's a milieu to be environment. At the same time, we will share with our clientele and their family members the fact that we're faced with this extraordinary challenge here. And um, our, our goal is not to ask a resident to leave a long-term care environment. Our goal is to find a solution to that kind of a situation so that we can continue to offer the highest quality services possible, but we are respecting our personnel. We are trying to, as much as possible, to minimize the impact of this of this really very negative behavior so that the staff feel, yeah, I do work in a safe place um, and I'm entitled to work in a safe place. So... I guess with the rise, at least in in our treatments or diagnosis of things like dementia and Alzheimer's and other, you know, um, you know, cognitive diseases and neurodegenerative things that are affecting seniors and others. I mean, did, has it changed? I guess in even in your life and experience of um, working in some of these settings, in terms of what contact. Um, you know, healthcare workers are coming into, or, or maybe describe that in another way? So it is true that there are many residents in long-term care environments who face extraordinary cognitive impairments. Uh, dementia is, is a, you know, a real, uh, an illness that uh, affects the behaviors of clientele for sure. Um, in, in terms of uh, um, offering inappropriate social behaviors, 
demonstrating a lack of judgment uh, or inhibition um, where they aren't able to manage the comments that they made, uh, aggressive behaviors towards healthcare staff. All of these are dynamics that exist um, with the clientele who have cognitive impairments such as dementia. So um, what, what do you do when you have residents who have dementia who demonstrate behaviors um, such as this that are discriminatory towards the personnel where it causes difficulty, suffering, unpleasantness to the personnel in their, in their daily work, but it's because dementia is playing such an important role. I mean, we, we can't deny the reality of this cognitive impairment and that these behaviors come in, in you know, come with it. Um, but it, it, it still makes it a very complex environment for the personnel working in it. Uh, they, they don't have to love these behaviors. So how do we make them um, be able to function appropriately and, and, and still feel a sense of um, appreciation for the work that they're doing and comfort in their, in their work? Um, uh, I guess that's the, that's the challenge. You're not going to, we, we don't have a cure for dementia. Um, and uh, we we have to find a way to be able to continue to offer as much as possible quality of life for the residents who live there, but a quality work life environment for our for our personnel. But yeah, dementia is is definitely one of those uh, diagnoses where there are symptoms that um, uh, are these kind of behaviors that I just described, and the personnel, many of whom do recognize it and they understand it. They say, oh, I know, you know, Mrs. X or Mr. Y, this is how they are. This is, they've been diagnosed for many years. That's why they're living in a long-term care environment. They can't care for themselves. Um, but it's uh, nonetheless um, not pleasant and, and very uncomfortable, um, though I think that, you know, they, they, with training and knowledge and understanding, uh, personnel seem to be able to uh, work through a lot of those issues for the most part, I would say. Yeah, so I think, you know, we can probably, many of us can be compassionate, I guess, you know, with a person who's demonstrating those kinds of behaviors, um, who has, like you say, some cognitive impairment, which is causing them to, to act out the way they, they do. Does your advice or perspective change when those same sorts of behaviors of sexism or racism come out of the mouths of people who don't have a cognitive impairment? Yeah, okay. So um, it's a different situation when they don't have a cognitive impairment. And so in those kind of circumstances, I think there's we know that there is more uh, opportunity to be able to challenge these behaviors with our clientele, mm -hmm. often um, with the support of family members, we call them in to uh, to help us, uh, substitute decision makers or you know close family members who are involved. Um, we have an opportunity in those kind of cases as well to to share with the residents some of our policies that exist in the organization. The example that I could use is in my own organization, we have a civility policy. Mm -hmm. So it's a written document, excellent, excellent document written by our human resources department. And we would use a policy like that, We'd share it with our resident. We would share it with family members as well to talk about the fact that, you know, to reinforce the fact that a need for civility 
is it's a primary principle um, in our organization and that we have an expectation that our residents will be civil towards uh, the personnel uh, and that it's not it, it's it, it's an expectation it's quite uh, a valuable one and I, I would say that um, maybe there are residents for many reasons uh, maybe not having dementia but being fearful angry agitated not even happy with their quality of life in their long-term care environment which might provoke uh, these kind of reactions, but they're not acceptable. And we have to find ways, strategies to be able to work with our clientele who would not have dementia, who are not diagnosed with dementia, who demonstrate these kind of behaviors. And through this mediation process, um, introducing our civility policy, working with the family members to be able to find some kind of solutions. I, I mean, these are these are our strategies to be mm -hmm. able to work with that kind of a population. And uh, in many cases, it's very successful. And in other cases, less so. Sometimes we have to go back and repeat the, the discussion mm -hmm. and uh, maybe have to get social services involved as well or find strategies to better understand the, the, the issues that provoke this kind of reaction. There are people who were discriminatory towards others years before they came into long-term care. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, personality, personality disorder, uh, 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 not very nice people who live in residence might do these kind of things. And a civility policy uh, might be a, a very effective tool to be able to have someone understand that we need to put an end to that. Why? We want to improve their quality of life. We want to ensure absolutely that these precious resources, our personnel feel safe at work. And uh, and uh, living in this milieu de vie does still uh, require certain modifications of behavior when that's possible. Um, and that we, we would uh, promote that uh, as much as we can. And I've certainly been involved in discussions like that on a few occasions. And I think that um, when confronted, especially with family members, who are a bit embarrassed by their, you know, when the when a resident family member does that kind of thing, um, we have to find kind of solutions and strategies. Yeah, it, and it makes sense. I think you know, just reflecting on my own family. I mean, we've we sat down probably five six years ago with our son, and we put our family values up on a piece of paper and said, "Look, we all share these. We live together, um, and this is how we're going to treat each other." Um, I think what you're describing as well is that, you know, w while it may be a, a person's residence, they share that residency with others. Um, and there needs to be some common values, right, That the, or policies for civility, as you describe, uh, that they need to sort of coexist with. If I could just add one other thing, and I think it's an important part of the conversation, is that when we talk to, as you said, in the example of of a resident who does not have cognitive impairment, who has mm -hmm. the ability, the capacity to consent, the ability to understand the conversation we're having, some of um, the information that we share with those residents and family members can be that, you know, racist comments, they erode job satisfaction. They make, they cause employees to not be happy with their work. They mm -hmm. lose self-confidence. Uh, employees come in feeling not confident about the job that, that they're doing. And they lose their compassion as a caregiver. And I would think that the residents who, who um, receive these services, they want the, the, the uh, personnel 
to be compassionate, to feel compassionate, and that, that, that we don't want to taint the caregiving. We want the caregiving to be kind of a warm, friendly approach. And, you know, this, this kind of action and behavior, uh, it, it really uh, it demolishes that kind of a relationship. And so that actually is even part of the conversation with those, with those clients. Let's, let's work towards a milieu to be environment where, you know, you know, people are there to take care of you and they're happy to do it. Um, but hard to be happy to do it when you feel your environment is, is no longer safe. Yeah. Well, that makes good sense. And I can, I can, through your conversation, I can imagine you helping to facilitate that understanding from the different parties involved. Um, so, you know, we're exploring different contexts here, I think it's very helpful, Kevin. So thank you. Um, how does this change then moving from the long-term, long-term care environments that we've been talking about so far, moving into a home care environment where it actually is physically a person's real home, um, that they, you know, may own outright. So, um, do any of the things that we've described right now change that relationship and and some of the advice that you've given so far? So um, I would say that, in my opinion, it doesn't change it at all. Um, it's true. We're offering service in the person's home. We do that here in, in the CLSEs, offer service at home to be able to maintain someone in their home so that when there is loss of autonomy, that they don't necessarily have to go into a long-term care environment. We can we can avoid that. We can postpone that as long as possible. So that's a very important service that clientele, I think the clientele really appreciate very much because they want to stay home as long as they possibly can. And these kind of services can ensure that. But for employees to go into someone's home um, and not feel safe in that home as well, uh, they don't want to go back. Um, mm -hmm. they, they, they refuse to go back. They say, look, this, something needs to change this environment. I, I need to feel safe going there as well. This is my work. I do this work every day and mm -hmm. it's hard work. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to offer something positive so that the, the client can maintain their ability to be as autonomous as, as possible at home. Um, but I am confronted with this kind of behavior. It affects the staff in the same way. They, they, they lose their sense of, uh, compassion as a caregiver. They they feel a real uh, loss of job satisfaction and their self-confidence is, is impacted. And so uh, there are, I have seen experiences where uh, 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 clients might say, well, I don't want that you know person to come back, or I don't want those caregivers to offer me care and services. And if those are uh, referring to, you know, kind of discriminatory uh, reasons, the rationale mm -hmm. for it. Um, you know, in my experience, many years, even before I was doing full-time clinical ethics as a manager in multidisciplinary services, my mess or as an ombudsperson, my message would be: look, this is this is who we who offers care. These are our personnel. These are experts in their domain. These are people who know their job very well. And that, you know, a rationale for saying I don't want them for reasons of discrimination and prejudice, that's not acceptable. And it could actually lead in certain circumstances to, to the, the organization not being able to provide that kind of care to somebody um, and then forcing a, 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 a client who lives at home to have to go and hire their own private help that's not you know, uh, uh, 
government-funded kind of help, the public mm -hmm. system, which is what it is, that could actually incur in certain situations. We don't want that to happen. We don't want to create that kind of scenario, but we remind people it's not acceptable to be able to um, to make those to treat the clientele when they come in that way, to make them feel unsafe in your environment. They won't want to come back at some point. I'll have nobody to send to your home because of that kind of situation. And I think it it puts us in a situation where you know we need to recognize the value of our personnel and and not for them to feel. Um, uh, discriminated against and the civility policy we use it in those situations as well i've been in situations where we've 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 presented to them physically in their hand and gone through it and say look look at some of the information in the policy what it's trying to relay as a message and the negative impact of your behavior on our personnel what can we do to improve this situation uh, because we have to find a solution so one of the things you've been describing, I think, in a few different aspects, has you know been the you know job satisfaction and the you know the you know the reason that people are in their professions is because there there is a commitment to um, you know to, to a vocational calling. Um, one of the words that we've become increasingly, uh, I guess, used to hearing in the course of the pandemic has been that of moral distress. Um, and so while I appreciate that. You know, the advice of some care to some caregivers might be to, you know, take the higher ground and, you know, be compassionate and it's like it's not about you and, uh, you know, do your best to provide that. I, I think you've made it clear. I mean, some of that is just is probably eating away um, at, at them in some form or another. So how do you counsel, uh, you know, healthcare workers or people to, you know, to turn the other cheek in the face of social injustice that really, you know, goes against, you know, their, their very fabric about who they are and their, their own personal values, um, you know, how, how do you help them? Honestly, it is such an important question you're asking because moral distress is absolutely um, a, a, a reality in circumstances where someone feels discriminated against in their workplace and that that they are eroded further and further as they as they go through that kind of experience so it's a real issue um it is the uh it is the message to our clientele as well that um uh the personnel are suffering moral distress that the distress is their um, inability to kind of handle this kind of circumstance. It's not an easy message to the personnel. Ignore it. You know, turn you know, turn the other cheek. Forget it. Um, it's it's um, painful for them mm -hmm. to have to hear that uh, on an ongoing in an ongoing way. Um, uh, we do, we look to human resources for answers to those kind of situations to offer the greatest level of support to our personnel, and we should be offering that support as much as possible. Um, caregivers tend to have a really amazing perspective on the people they work with, um, and I, we count on that as well. These caregivers, these employees who work uh, at home and in long-term care environments, they try not to be blaming of their clientele. They try to understand on their own. I mean, that's some of the most amazing qualities of, the, of these people, of this mm -hmm. personnel. They often take the high road, realizing the reality of the situation, particularly when we're talking about 
um, the clientele with, with dementia. Um, yet they suffer the distress and require as much support as possible to endure this kind of a situation. So it's not about turning the other cheek. It's about understanding um, as much as is possible, uh, but interventions need to take place to be able to support our personnel, to be able to propose a reasonable change uh, because the system cannot afford to lose these precious employees. And so um, I, I think the moral distress is the is the one of the most significant arguments for us having to intervene to support our personnel in these in this kind of um, destructive uh, process. Yeah, I, and I so I yeah I think that that definitely lines up and um, makes makes good sense in terms of the advocacy and the support an organization will provide to you know their personnel and uh, in terms of how they're valued and um, and being supported um, you know so maybe it, it tees up a little bit these this other part of the, the question which is you know so how does this line up then with organizational policies or practices or change initiatives like you know we're hearing around you know EDI equity diversity inclusion psychological safety um, organizations that are trying to cultivate a just culture right so um you know, that's um, uh, an initiative that is um, extraordinarily valuable in our public health establishments nowadays, and that we are, uh, we use that, that model, that approach uh, to uh, support our personnel um, in demonstrating that we're creating policies, that we are implementing systems, that we're developing training, uh, that we are sensitive um, to those issues, that they're not minimized and ignored or put on the side, that there is significant value um, uh, to uh, um, equity, diversity, and inclusion across all sites of our organization. And, um, and I think cultivating that just culture is, is something that the personnel uh, appreciates. They mm-hmm. feel like organizations like in the public health establishments are, are um, value that, that, uh, that kind of um, initiative, that we, that we respect our personnel to the point where we will do take all kinds of measures necessary to address these issues and not to um, pretend that they don't exist. And so, uh, you know, I think we're very cognizant of, of, our, our leadership uh, responsibilities and um, the thing, the steps that we need to take to be able to all of us be on the same page in terms of the, these kind of issues and to find solutions. We're always trying to find solutions. We're always trying to grow in our knowledge about these kind of initiatives um, and uh, and finding measures that, that work well with, with our clientele. And I think that you know, um, we are more and more aware of uh, how important it is to uh, have our staff feel safe at work and happy to be there every single day. Mm-hmm. And prejudice and discrimination is the contrary. It will make work the work environment, whether it's an acute care in the hospital, a long-term care setting, at home, rehab, um, in the community, it's... it's uh, 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 something that we we can't afford to maintain, and we need to find solutions. And I think that leadership through equity, diversity, inclusion uh, policies and um, uh, methods uh, will help us moving forward. 
Yeah, I think you make a good point. If you know that, I mean, it's you know those kinds of cultures and spaces that we're trying to create. I mean, you know, we can focus on um, how ineffective it is and how threatening it is when it comes from our colleagues or for other people that we work with. But the you know the the people that we're serving are just another part of that sort of environment, and so. Uh, it's in our interest, in terms of all those, to, right, to um, to remove those kinds of uh, unsafe behaviors and actions to create a, a holistically safe environment. Um, so, you know, you've touched on, you know, the another part of the care team, I guess, if it, if I can use that language, um, you know, throughout the conversation around families. Um, so, you know. Where do they fit into some of the conversations you've been having? You've you've talked about you know involving them a little bit um, in terms of helping their intervention, uh, you know, with their family members. Um, but you know, more broadly speaking, what has been your experience in terms of involving them in in some of these strategies and and um, changes that you've been talking about? Right. So yeah, I would tell you that particularly in long term care environments, that uh, family members are frequently very involved with their family member who, who live in long-term care. Uh, we try to engage them as much as possible in, in situations like this or any other challenges that we might be uh, meeting with those long-term care residents. Um, I would tell you in most cases, family members are very helpful. They're very supportive of the concerns that the team members present. Mm -hmm. They're often, as I mentioned to you, embarrassed or shocked or even disgusted by some of these comments, you know, are there family members who say, well, you know, my my grandfather came from another generation and, you know, that's how they used to talk. Yeah, there are people who do that. But for the most part, uh, family members are, are quite helpful in trying to um, uh, uh, help deflect some of that and uh, uh, redirect so that there can be a kind of an understanding that, you know, we don't want uh, the employees to suffer as a result, and we want to be able to move on from those kind of comments to other things that 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 need to be uh, focused on more. More importantly, um, they receive the family members receive the civility policy in our in our organization, and we expect we we explain to them as well some of those common expectations that we have of the of the resident. Um, I, I think for the most part. Uh, family members want to work with us to be able to find solutions to this as well. And that help, that benefit is is incredibly uh, uh, important um, because we can't necessarily just do it on our own. Sometimes residents will listen to their family members more than they will listen to us in certain circumstances. And in order to please family members might say, okay, fine, I'll change. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be more cognizant of that and I'll, and I'll pay more attention to it in the future. That's certainly our hope in all of those situations. So um, family members could try to encourage and reinforce the organization's efforts to instill a racially tolerant views um, in their relatives during visits. So uh, yeah, we, we they're, they're very involved. It's sort of an extension of that. I'm not sure in, in terms of the the different sites that you uh, you operate and work in yourselves, but you have resident councils like some of the other provinces. Um, is there a way that you engage in in them uh, as as part of this? 
So we have uh, uh, users committees that exist mm -hmm. in the organization and the users committee is designed to support family members and residents and clients if they have dissatisfaction and might want to file a complaint with an ombudsperson about uh, things related to their service. I've, I've never, um, so I mean, I don't have that many situations of these kind of incidences of, of discrimination. There are a few. We haven't gotten users committees involved, but you know, family members and residents themselves can make use of these resident users committees in the event that they are, you know, uh, they're uh, required to participate in a conversation with the team about behaviors that are very prejudicial and discriminatory towards the personnel, and maybe they don't agree, or they, you know, they feel like, uh, you know, this has now made them feel uncomfortable in their in their in their living environment. So uh, that is where there's an opportunity for residents and family members to use the committee. But um, my experience has not been to. Uh, to use them very often in those kind of situations. Okay, thank you. Um, so one of the uh, you know last questions, you know, you've, you've certainly talked. Well, a lot of our conversations thus far is is really focused, I guess, on the front line and the those that are providing the services themselves. But I mean, you have touched on the role of leaders in this, so maybe we could just sort of explore that a little bit further as well. Um, you know, what is their obligation and responsibility in this? Um, you know, what can they do to help create safe spaces? So I would say that um, the leadership of a health establishment has an obligation to do uh, as much as they can to support and create safe spaces in public health establishments like long-term care, even offering services at home um, uh, to, to clientele in a home care setting, because we understand the negative impact this has on, on, on any human being. It's any human being will be negatively impacted by it. We need to sensitize our personnel to the realities of this that exists. We need to take it seriously. Uh, we need to ensure safe work environments. Um, the personnel need to feel comfortable in the environment they work in every day. Um, the personnel needs to know that we care about these things, that we create policies that um, have a positive impact on uh, implementing the kind of change that needs to occur. The leadership should demonstrate that the organization cares, that we care about your uh, your feelings in this work environment. We care about you feeling distressed or uncomfortable or, or, or even um, emotionally and psychologically uh, impacted by these kind of behaviors, that we care about, uh, about you and the work that you do. Um, and we offer training, offer strategies. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, you read a lot about a, an approach which is about acknowledge and redirect. Uh, um, that 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 is one kind of methodology that that personnel are are trained and and supported in using. Uh, family members use it as well uh, mm -hmm. to be able to try and 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 move away from those kind of those kind of um, situations and behaviors. So all, all of these, these measures um, uh, demonstrate how leadership uh, supports its, its personnel. As I said many times, we need our personnel. We value them. They are precious uh, individuals to us. We cannot function without our personnel um, um, working comfortably and satisfied in their, in their work environment. And this kind of dynamic could never possibly make someone feel comfortable and safe. Um, and so uh, 
that's the role of leadership in this kind of situation. And I think now I can speak for my own organization. I feel very um, satisfied that leadership takes important uh, positions to be able to try and uh, address those kind of issues. And myself in clinical ethics, when I'm called in for a consult in these kind of cases where services are hindered as a result of these kind of circumstances or, or threats of aggression and violence or whatever, that uh, that kind of intervention uh, can be helpful in, in, in creating a new dynamic uh, so that that uh, we we um, uh, the the clientele is safe, but the personnel safe as well. Yeah, well, I think throughout the conversation here today, you you've made a very compelling sort of um, you know position on you know why safety like you know, uh, is everybody's business, right? It, it it is so critical in a in a in our current context where you know, healthcare services, support services are in demand is greater than the services that are available. Um, we don't have enough personnel to provide the services. Um, retention of our workforce is is more important than it's ever been. Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, we can't turn a blind eye to these kinds of situations, even though they're happening in, in a different milieu, as you've described. Um, so, yeah, thank you. I mean, you're, you've, provided so much concrete, I think, advice and, and practical tips um, in terms of how to frame this and, and how to move forward with that. Um, so any other final words to you, Kevin, and certainly as we bring this conversation to a close? Well, uh, I think the subject is incredibly important. I'm really, really um, glad to have the opportunity to participate in this conversation with you. I'm sure that it's going to resonate with a lot of healthcare workers mm -hmm. um, in in the network, really all across all across Canada. Um, I I I, uh, I salute our employees across all of these public healthcare establishments um, for the hard work that they do, for the dedication, devotion, commitment that they have to their clientele, even in the most challenging circumstances such as the one that we're discussing today i feel like the personnel often they they understand their code of ethics they respect and support their own code of ethics and they're always trying to find solutions to very um difficult circumstances but it's a partnership mm -hmm. and we work with they work with the organization we work with the clientele we work with family members and if we continue that kind of a model um, and 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 reinforce the knowledge that our personnel needs to have to be able to deal with this. I think that you know we're on a good road towards um, making people feel safer. But it's it's not an easy issue. It's not easily resolvable. Unfortunately, it does occur, and um, and we need to to do our best to be able to support our personnel as much as possible. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, I, I mean, I think. You know, your message has certainly been one of you. You validated that this is a problem, and you certainly haven't sugarcoated. You know the impact it has on on our precious um, staff and resources. Um, but I think that you know you've really made it clear that you know collaboration. You know that care is a community endeavor. Or requires collaboration with so many, um, and that if everybody takes this seriously, and um, there are methods and opportunities to sort of you know if not resolve it, um, and certainly improve upon it to the, to the safety of everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate it. I uh, wish you well, and I hope to have another conversation with you another time.
Thank you so much. Wish you well as well. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.